I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Dmitry Baliazny, founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of Baliazny Asset Management a $20 billion multi-strategy hedge fund considered one of the leading multi-manager platforms. Dimitri launched the firm in the early 2000s and today has 2,000 employees across 15 global offices. Our conversation is a masterclass in all aspects of the multi-manager model. We cover everything, learning to trade, building new strategies, attracting talent, managing the individual pod, portfolio and risk management, competitive landscape, and the future. Dimitri is both a gifted money manager and business builder, and both sides come out in spades. Before we get going, this week we'll release episode three of season three of Private Equity Deals, and it's a doozy. You might not at first think that a dairy products business like Milk Specialties Global has special appeal. It turns out that when Michael Fish's American Securities bought the business, they were the seventh buyer of this high-quality company. According to PitchBook, that's the most any business has transacted between sponsor groups in history. So have a listen about what it takes to buy, enhance, and sell one of the great businesses in the middle market buyout space. And when you're talking about high-quality, Don't forget that you'll sound as intelligent as they come the moment you share your fanness for capital allocators and private equity deals with a family member, friend, colleague, random stranger on Twitter who might become your fiance, or even sworn enemy. It's all good. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Dmitry Baliasny. Dmitry, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Why don't you take me back into how you first got started trading? When I was a kid in high school, I saved up some money from various sales jobs. And I first started investing in mutual funds and then kind of graduated to stocks. Probably first semi-serious investing and trading was my first finance job. Turned 18, I was licensed as a stockbroker. Got a job at a small firm, mostly cold calling, trying to get new clients. And I started reinvesting the commissions that I earned from being a broker to my own trading account and trying to teach myself how to trade, which was pretty disastrous for a while. <laughs> How'd you find yourself on a path from that to figuring some things out? I was very passionate about it and I really enjoyed it. I always had good perseverance, not much natural talent, but good perseverance. And so I figured if it was something I was really committed to, passionate about, I got myself into a place where I could have some people to learn from that I'd be able to figure it out eventually. So after uh, being a broker successfully for a few years where I was doing well on the sales side, but I was losing all my commissions trading for myself, I uh, applied to a bunch of different trading firms, hedge funds, and I was rejected from pretty much all of them. 
I didn't, I didn't really have any relevant investing experience. And I was very young. I got lucky and I answered a newspaper ad back in the days when you had newspaper ads. And it was the one time that Schoenfeld Securities ran a newspaper advertisement for traders in Chicago when they opened up a Chicago office and they kind of came in with a few guys in an empty office that they wanted to fill. And they were looking for people that didn't have preconceived notions of what it took to be a successful trader, didn't have any bad habits and ingrained biases. And so I fit that really well. I was very clear that I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but I really wanted to learn and was very committed to doing so. And so I was hired into their uh, proprietary training program. So it was a great opportunity because your only job was proprietary trading. You didn't have to do anything else. You just had to learn how to trade. And you had a few experienced people to learn from, but the compensation was zero. The base pay was zero. They bought you lunch, which was great. But I figured I had the opportunity to take risk and bet on myself. And I didn't make any money for pretty much the next year. Slowly started to figure out some systems and processes that kind of worked for me. I started making a little bit of money and then got more consistent and scaled it up after that. What were some of the lessons you remember learning in those early training program that helped you set your path? They did a good job about really kind of limiting the things that you could do. One of the challenges like learning any new activity is at first it's kind of overwhelming or there's like a lot of different things that you could do. So whether you're learning how to ski or how to swing a tennis racket or how to trade, it's like a lot of footwork, your balance, your hand, your eye, the ball, this and that. You're trying to just limit it. And so they did that with trading where you couldn't just come in and trade whatever you wanted, however you wanted it. You had like very tight risk limits, very tight limits of what you were allowed to trade, when you were allowed to trade it, how much you were allowed to risk, what were the holding periods. And you just create like a very well-defined small box to start where you just have like a few elements to worry about. You only had a small number of trades, a small number of potential trading instruments, small holding periods. You kind of define the types of trades that you were looking for. When you define that, then you try to build from it. And then once you had success within that small box, then you gradually were allowed to expand the box. And you could trade more things, different holding periods, different types of trades, more capital, et cetera. But at the beginning, it was very tight in all those aspects, which I think was helpful. And then you just learn a method, like what's the discipline? What are you trying to do? What is the ideal trade? And limiting that to like a couple types of trades that you try to create as your bread and butter. And once you're able to consistently do those, you're looking at this overwhelming picture of hundreds of different tickers, but you're looking for certain particular things uh, and get good at doing that consistently. And once you do that, then you add on different types of trades. As you started to figure out how to make money yourself, what was your bread and butter? I started with very short-term trading. So we would actually divide up the day into uh, segments. So you would have morning trades and then afternoon trades. I and mean, they were like a little bit different. In the morning, a lot of times you looked for reversal trades where the market would open up and you look for stocks that weren't trading well versus the market. And they were showing relative weakness versus the market and industries that were showing relative weakness versus the market. And you learn how to spot those early. They might be up because the overall tape was up and you had short opportunities. And then as the market would settle in and sometimes would reverse, those would really significantly outperform. And you try to spot those within the first 15 or 30 minutes of the day. 
and try to capture those sentiment swings. In the afternoon, it was typically more momentum-type trading where you're looking for things that were really outperforming during the day, continue to gather momentum into the afternoon session where they might be a multi-day type of trade. You were trying to capture, sometimes on the back of news flow or an industry strength as well, trying to capture that momentum and riding that wave into the closing bell and then eventually into you know multi-day type trades. So as you started to figure out how to make money as an individual portfolio manager, I'm curious where your path took you from trading success to the beginnings of BAM. So I was always very entrepreneurial. I always wanted to build something from a young age. Like I always read a lot of business biographies, business publications, and was always very interested in how companies were built. Before I was in college, I had several ventures. I ran a small music-related sales company where we would hire a bunch of salespeople. And then in um, finance, when I was a broker for a few years, I had four, five, six people at different periods working for me, even though I was just starting out college. So that was always kind of my mindset is once you figure out some basic success, how do you leverage yourself and really build something sustainable and scalable? After I had had some success trading for a few years, I went to my boss and said, I'd like to build out a group and a team. And at the time, the firm was really structured around individual traders. And so they said, well, we don't really have anybody that does that. I was like, well, I'm willing to pay for them out of my end. I'm making money pretty consistently. And they said, great, if you want to pay for them, you know, go for it. I had the support of the firm to go out and hire people, but the risk was all on me to pay them and manage them. And I hired the first class of four. It was 1997. I hired the next four in 1998. A few of those guys are still with us today. I signed people, sectors, groups of stocks to kind of manage and allocated risk to them. I ran the majority of the risk and would upsize trades. And then we went from that to hiring the first analyst in 1999. Same thing. I said, I want to hire a fundamental analyst. And the general feedback was, why in the world do you want to do that? Those guys just lose money. You're doing great. Don't screw up your head. But I thought, we wanted to manage more capital and hold positions longer. The only way you can do those things is you have to have a view on companies longer term. We hired our first analyst, and that was the beginning of our research department. And then we went from there as that scaled to hiring more experienced sector head type portfolio managers, more in today's mold, where you would hire a head of healthcare, a head of technology, and then they would hire more junior analysts underneath them, and I would allocate capital for them to manage. Before you brought in an analyst, were you focused at all on fundamentals? I was focused on the change in fundamentals and news flow. So I wasn't focused on fundamentals of trying to figure out what a company was going to earn next year. But we were focused on what is driving the stock for the next few days and few weeks. We weren't building models or running valuations, but we were very focused on what are investors anticipating going into this earnings print or what are they anticipating going into this conference presentation? What are the one or two key things to be on the lookout for and training in anticipation of that, but also a lot of times in reaction to how is the market reacting to the news flow? If you're getting positive news that was sort of as expected, but the stock is not acting well, like we were very focused on you know, trading the other side of that and capturing the sentiment swings. So they're more like multi-day type swing trading where fundamentals were an input, but not fundamentals in terms of long-term valuations or models. At what point in time did you spin out and create 
polyacetic acid management? It was iterative. So within Schoenfeld, when I started, there were like 100 people there. And when I spun out our group, there were over 1,000 people there. So the firm had grown quite a lot. It was very successful. So we were up to like 25 people or so around 2000, 2001. And our strategy started to divert a little bit from the rest of the firm because we were trying to hold positions longer. We were trying to add the fundamental analysis piece. And so we needed things like sell side coverage. I opened up the yellow pages in Chicago, looked up Goldman Sachs under G, called them up and said, we need institutional sales coverage. And they were like, who are you? We showed up at their office and they didn't know what to make of us. And they put us with their uh, middle markets guy. And after a couple of days of calling in hundreds of trades to them per day, they quickly realized that they should switch our sales coverage. That was kind of the beginning of our relationship with Goldman and the sell side in general. We needed to start meeting with corporate managements. And so we couldn't have guys walking around in shorts and t-shirts around the office. So we needed to get our own space. We went from an individual and a small group to a large group to a separate division, to a separate division with our own real estate that was still funded by the firm to a division where I put up money and then we became a hedge fund, but with proprietary capital where myself and Steve Schoenfeld were the only investors. And then we fully spun it out and started taking external capital and also piece by piece weaned ourselves off of the middle and back office and started building out all of our own stack, which took a number of years to kind of fully do. So as you look at it today, and you've had obviously a lot of change over the last 20 years, how do you describe your business? We're a multi-strategy, multi-PM trading and investing firm. So we have almost 2,000 people globally across over 15 offices now, and we engage in lots of different strategies. So fundamental long, short equity trading is still the largest strategy, but that's down from being 100% of the risk in the early days. even. Five years ago, it was probably 85% of the risk. Now it's about 45 to 50% of the risk. And we've built out large businesses in macro where we have lots of different verticals within macro. Same with commodities, equity arbitrage strategies, credit. And we're in the process of building out lots of different quantitative type strategies. So as you look at this business today, you're one of, I don't know, four or five of the big players in these pod shops. What's been the driver of growth over the last couple of years? The term pod shops makes somebody visualize lots of very independent teams where the firm is a capital allocator and a back office provider, but doesn't do much else. And teams do their own thing within their risk limits. We've always tried to strike a balance between creating the benefits of that, which is lots of independent thought and creativity and entrepreneurial drive from the heads of the teams. But we really try to help the teams build businesses on the platform. And we really try to create strategies and build businesses and then fill them with teams as well. So it's both bottom up and top down business building. And so to answer your question in the last five years, that's really accelerated even more where we have ideas and they're iterative with the teams and they constantly evolve as you see what's working of how to build optimal investing strategies where you're really building a business. When we started out building commodities, for example, like we didn't really have any commodities. And so what's the best way to do that? 
and you try to outline what's a mature commodity business look like and what's stage one of that, stage two of that, stage three of that. What do the teams look like? What's the infrastructure that you need? What kind of team leaders do you need? What kind of research and technology stacks do you need? So it's much more than just hiring people and giving them capital, although that's obviously a significant and important part of it. But a lot of it is you're really trying to partner with business builders in these different areas that bring a lot of that thought to the firm. And also the firm is contributing a lot of our experience and our expertise in different areas. Let's take this commodity example. You're going into a market you didn't have exposure to before. You said there's step one, step two, step three. What did they look like as you mapped out building out the commodities? You start with research. So you look at what are the good commodities businesses on the street? How are they organized? And you look at different types. In commodities, for example, there's proprietary firms, there's commodity trading merchants, there's CTAs, there's hedge funds that have been successful in the space. And so you're looking at all of those and you're like, okay, what's worked, what's transferable, and what's likely not transferable for a long period of time. For example, you know, physical trading takes a long time to build out. We didn't want to start with that. Or some things have sharp ratios that we're not excited about. So traditional long-term CTA type trading, we're not really that excited about. So you sort of figure out what you like and what you don't like and what's applicable. So where can you take similar types of strategies where you are doing fundamental work you're also really navigating in liquid trading markets and you're positioning risk management portfolio construction or big parts of it that you've tackled in equities or you tackled in macro trading. And you basically start to blueprint that business. And then what are the larger profit pools? Do you want to focus on larger markets, smaller markets? Which of those are more approachable to start? And then you try to plug in the talent. Obviously, not everybody is great and available immediately. So you're trying to plug in folks that are a good fit for where you are in the business, where they can partner with you to build liquid, large coverage. If you take the corollary to when you first joined Schoenfeld, for your firm, when you're entering a new space, you want to set those guardrails. You want to have the smaller box so you can expand the box over time. But as you're also defining the opportunity, you're talking about trying to bring in really talented PMs in each of those spaces you'd like exposure to. How do you balance that desire to have initial risk control to make sure that you're not making a big mistake with trying to bring in really talented people that probably want to put their pedal to the metal on day one. The two concepts that we think about with that are the capital allocation and the business plan has to be commensurate with the experience of the person. So if you're hiring somebody who hasn't run money previously, but you think they're a talented analyst who might be able to convert to a portfolio manager. We'll put them through a PM development program, and it's much more structured in terms of here's the mandate. It's very well defined. It's relatively narrow. The team is small to start, and you're building it over a few years. You're not running a lot of capital to start. And with the success, you're getting more resources for all of those. And then the guys that work out, we've had a couple of guys who've become partners now who started in the PM development program. But five years later, they're running very large teams and large allocations and are partners in the firm, but they didn't start with that. Now, on the other hand, if you go all the way to the other side of it, if you're taking someone who has been very successful, running a lot of capital at a similar firm, 
where you think the risk limits and the resources they had, we could certainly replicate or do better. So their skills should be pretty transferable. And they've had really good track record managing both teams and capital. Their business plan and capital allocation are going to be much more ambitious to start. But even there, you'll have a multi-year plan. And so we try to have deliverables for what is phase one. So you want to make sure, even if somebody's managed a 25-person team and billions of dollars, they're probably not going to start with that because there's non-solicit. So they have to build a team from scratch. You have to get used to a new firm. There's usually a sit-out period where they have to get back in step with the market. So what is phase one for the first year? What does that look like in terms of the sub-PMs underneath that person or the senior analyst underneath that person? What's the coverage? What's the capital? And then you have an expected sharpened P&L based off of that. And assuming that goes according to plan, then it's like, okay, what's phase two? Well, phase two, we want to run twice as much money. And so in order to do that, we need to expand to this area. And this I've done before. I can hire analysts to do this. This I haven't done before, but here's why I think we could be successful in that area. But I need a sub-PM, so that's contingent on hiring that person. We need additional technology to do it. You don't get too far ahead. I think five and 10-year plans, I think markets change too much and it's not usually that helpful. But I think one, two, three years is pretty helpful. And then you're obviously iterating those every year. I'd love to turn this concept of how you build in a new business to that individual PM level. In any of the strategies, as you're thinking about adding another PM, how do you go about finding, doing the diligence and deciding if that's someone that fits into BAM? It's, again, a combination of targeted and opportunistic. You could start with a sheet of paper with a bunch of boxes on every box that you'd like to have filled, but they take a really long time because the best people in a particular space aren't available all the time. So that's kind of the opportunistic piece. Somebody might get frustrated with their current firm for whatever reason. Maybe they're vastly outperforming other people there. That's a scenario we really like where the firm is not doing that great, but the person is doing great. Maybe they're, you know, it's an equitable split with other partners in management there where somebody's an up-and-comer and they've done great, but there's more established people who maybe put the firm on the map and now aren't contributing as much. We like those scenarios. You have the uh, fund roll-in piece. We've done a few of these recently. We have a couple more in process where guys have done reasonably well as an independent shop, but they haven't been able to scale the business to where they've liked because a lot of their attention is diverted to managing the business. They have negative hiring and retention selection because they can't compensate their teams as well. They have negative technology and data selection because you can't invest as much in that. And just the time suck of managing all that versus trading and investing. We like those situations where we could take off all of that and help them with all of those elements. And a lot of times they're freed up and thrive. So those are kind of the opportunistic ones that become available when they become available. Our business development team tries to form relationships with all folks that are talented in all the various spaces. You're forming those relationships. So when opportunistically there's a chance for those folks to move, you're the first call. And then there's the targeted piece, which says, okay, we have this sector in the market where our model spits out, we'd love to have a 15% allocation just based on the market cap and alpha pi of that sector. And the teams we have are at 8%. And so we have this gap and part of that we can fill by growing the teams, but part of it we need to fill by recruiting. Or you might have a coverage gap where you have, for example, power trading in commodities in Europe, but you don't have power trading in the US. 
And so we need to fill that. Or we have consumer in Asia, but you don't have this tech area covered in Asia. There's a lot of market cap and alpha that can be had by filling that seat. So those are targeted searches. And so every quarter we update the priorities per strategy with the recruiting teams of what are we focused on if we could fill in the next quarter, we'd be super excited to get a talented person in that seat. The process can be anywhere from a few months if you're lucky, if you know the person already and have a relationship. Sometimes it's a number of years and building that relationship before it's the right time for the person to make a move. What's the breadth of your business development team required to keep tabs effectively on the whole industry? It's grown with the firm and with the strategies. So everything started with a few people. My partner, Jen Blake, has been running it for almost 15 years now. And now underneath her, between the recruiting areas that focus on the business side, where we hire a lot of technology folks and data folks and all the people focused on the investing side, it's over 50 people. In what's clearly a competitive world for talent, what is your pitch to the PM relative to your competitors to get them to join you? It starts with that philosophy that we try to be a really good partner for people in the best sense of the term. So if you think of the venture capital business, which is we're building a growth stage venture capital business is another vertical. The best investors in that space, how do they get the best company founders to partner with them? Why does Mark Zuckerberg partner with one versus another when he's coming up the ranks? The best founders and I think the best PMs both look for a really value-added partner. You don't want somebody who's all over every decision that you're making where everything you're doing is micromanaged and it's very vague whether the subjective decisions are going to go your way or not. But by the same token, I don't think the best PMs want someone that's completely hands-off because a lot of the experience that a firm has, having gone through it with hundreds of other PMs over time, you don't have to reinvent the wheel on everything. They want some guidance on how have other successful folks dealt with this problem? How have they built out their teams? What's worked? What hasn't? How have they developed their analysts? What's been the best practices in data monetization? How do they utilize tech? What's the best practices in portfolio construction? And so you want the benefits of that experience and that business building from a partner as opposed to just saying, like, here's your capital, good luck, you lose money, we'll fire you, you make money, we'll give you more. So we really try to be that partner, like really find that sweet spot where we're really helping people build their businesses, helping them navigate their problems, showing them the best practices that have worked for others. That's kind of number one. And then number two is we've tried to develop a culture that's very collaborative and where insights at the macro level and insights at the process level are shared across the firm. And so you develop this learning organization where you're not just top-down telling people, like, here's what's worked for others, but also horizontally, they hear from each other, what are the nuggets that they're picking up from speaking to thousands of companies every month on the equity side that might be useful on the macro side? How often are companies talking about inflation picking up or easing? Very useful on the macro side. Vice versa on the macro side, when the Fed is active, your typical equity guy doesn't really have a sense of what that might mean. And so when they come in and they're making changes to the language, what does that mean? 
And so having that interpretation and constant iterative diagnosis of what's going on top down in the economy is super helpful. So that transparent and collaborative culture horizontally is super differentiated. That's reinforced by our partnership structure. So myself and my co-founders, we've been together for over 20 years. And then now we have 21 partners in the firm across strategies, across business departments, across geographies. And that really reinforces the culture. And I think in order to be a really effective specialist PM, they typically don't get hurt when there's something in their area of specialty that they're surprised by. Like They're usually all over that. But they usually get hurt when there's something that's rolling through the markets that might have started somewhere else that all of a sudden becomes an issue for their coverage. And so if you can get an insight into that earlier, you might be able to reposition your portfolio to weather those storms before they become evident to other specialists. And I think that's a critical advantage, especially at inflection points in these markets. So as you're trying to get the right PMs to join you or the ones that are the right fit, I'm curious how efficient the market is for talent from your business development team's perspective. It's relatively efficient. I think it depends on the transparency of the strategy. So equity long short, I would say, is pretty efficient. There's a lot of teams. They all go to the same conferences. A lot of them know each other. People move around, analysts move around. And so you can map things out pretty well. Other areas, if you get into lower latency quantitative trading, that's less efficient. And as you look at one of these people when they join you, compared to someone who's running an independent fund on the outside, what is it that you think creates an edge for the individual PM underneath your umbrella? Well, first of all, specialization. I think in long-short equity, it's very hard to run a standalone sector fund. I mean, it's hard to run any sort of fund. You have all the challenges from running an equity fund. But then on top of that, you have all the challenges from running a specialist equity fund. Sectors come in and out of favor. Think about energy. How many times has it gone through these multi-year cycles where it's fantastic and then it's really difficult to trade? where generalist money is just flowing out and you just have the specialist hedge funds fighting each other. That's a very tough environment to trade in. So if you're on a platform and you're running that type of strategy, it could be anything. It could be tech, it could be healthcare, it could be financials. Is there a great appetite to invest in a standalone financial fund? Probably not. But even in areas like tech or healthcare, it's very hard because for periods in time, there's just less to do. And what do you do during those periods? How patient are investors during those periods? Whereas if you're on a platform and there's 50 other teams in different sectors and the money can flow up and down depending where there's opportunity to help pay for the various resources and to not distract you with explaining to investors why it's a tougher period all the time rather than trying to innovate your process and develop your team and go to an extra meeting and try to figure out a new idea. It's just like a lot of headwinds. Few guys do it, but if you look back, we used to invest in a portfolio of hedge funds when I was at Schoenfeld. It's one of the uh, best things I had an opportunity to do early on, just personally investing in a portfolio of hedge funds and doing the diligence on that. If you look today and see how many of those funds are still around, very, very few of the single manager funds are still around. But the multi-strats we invested in at the time, most of them are around. So it's just a much more durable model because you can refresh 
We've had periods where a team has had to completely revamp their coverage, their approach, a lot of the members of a team. If you're running a standalone fund, like, that's very hard to do that. It's almost like why private equity exists. If you're running a publicly traded company and you're trying to do a wholesale revamp, you know the market doesn't have patience for that. Whereas in private equity has a ton of success doing that. And so it's the same thing, like your ability to adapt and change is just much better because you don't have to deal with all those other things and you have the resources of the firm to help you navigate that. So once you've given that stability to an individual PM, how do they go about creating that risk-controlled alpha so that you then can port that in all kinds of different ways at the firm level? Well, it starts with good old-fashioned stock picking and long shorts. So you're trying to pick longs that go up more than your shorts or in the down market shorts that go down more than your longs. And you're just trying to make the spread and trading around your positions actively to capture those spreads. And so you're typically in equities focused on earnings and multiples. Those are kind of the two main things that drive stock prices. So earnings, can you get ahead of the street? Can you get ahead of other hedge funds in estimating earnings inflections? where you're not 1%, 2 or 3% differentiated, but you're 30% differentiated for the quarter. And you might be 60% differentiated for next year because you figured out something that's going on with this business, which might be a combination of micro factors where that company is coming out with new products, new processes, changes to their business model, and macro where something is going on in the macro environment that's really going to be a huge tailwind or a huge headwind to what that company is doing. And you're putting those things together to arrive in really variant earnings estimates. And that changes all the time. And as people catch on and you're proven right or wrong, the stock prices will move and your spread of variance will close. And you have to rotate to something else. So that's one. And then second is multiples. So what's going on with the story? Is this something that's likely between the story of the company and the story of the macro that's going to be a case of expanding the multiple or contracting the multiple? And this is where like really understanding sentiment, positioning, and macro, and having lots of folks to talk to about that is really helpful. A big difference between a more junior analyst and a more senior analyst and then a PM is really an understanding the drivers, the story, the sentiment, which will lead to the multiple change. A frequent complaint you get from analysts when they're going through their uh, winners and losers is, I got the numbers right, but the stock got killed. Because the multiple contracted by 50%. It's like, well, that's part of your job is to understand what's going to make the multiple go up and down. The best investments are ones where you get both of those right. When that individual PM is constructing their portfolio, what guardrails are you putting on them? It's different by strategy. So the common things across all strategies is we have volatility budgets. So we allocate capital in the form of volatility dollars. And then somebody has an expected sharp. And they multiply that sharp times the vol dollars to arrive at their expected P&L for the year. And so you have like a drawdown framework that's very objective and clear that everybody signs off on on day one. And that's multi-step, so you're not forced to reduce the portfolio by a large chunk at any one time. So that's common across all the strategies. And then there's lots of specific limits based on the strategies. So... Macro, for example, in commodities, you'll have a lot of stress testing and stress limits based on historicals of when everything goes wrong, you get very extreme scenarios, how much can you lose? And you want to make sure people don't lose a lot more than, than they're a model to. You're hedging the tail risks. In 
equity portfolios, you'll have IDEO versus factor risk limits. And you might say, okay, your IDEO limit is, we want you to run at least an 80% IDEO, 20% factor portfolio. Or you might say it could be lower than that, but we want the factor portion to be more based on your industry factor risk because you have demonstrated skill in that versus your style risks or beta risks. You have liquidity limits. You'll have guidelines on things like number of positions and concentration. So lots of things like that that just create a box within which that person can operate. How do you think about developing talent so they can be successful under your firm? Yeah, I think that's really important at all levels. So starting at the junior levels starts all the way from an internship program where we had 120 interns this summer from a lot of the world's top schools. It's a big undertaking and it's across all strategies, all departments. We wind up converting somewhere between a third to a half of those into employees where the teams have had time to battle test them before they hire. And so at the end of the day, it really lowers your hiring costs and you're getting great talent. So it starts from that. Then you have different functions like analyst development programs. So we have a program where we take pretty young analysts, either straight out of investment banking or a couple of years out of sell side, and we put them through a development program for uh, six months typically, where we teach them all the uh, hedge fund equity investing skills of how you transfer that knowledge from sell side to buy side, and then make them available to our long short investing teams and match them up by sector. So that's a good one that we're growing. Then it goes to a PM development program where you take a former number two from a top performing team who's ready to make the jump to number one, and you put them through a two-year PM development program where they're running money during that time and scaling their team, scaling their capital, but they're learning all the pieces they don't know. So typically they'll know stock picking, but they won't know portfolio construction. They might have not had a lot of experience to trading. They probably wouldn't have managed a lot of people before. So we coach them on all those aspects. Then at the PM level, we have a couple different things. We have a PM development group that gives them lots of data that's fairly quantitative. So we look at all their stats and we give them a lot of feedback on what's working for them versus others. How do they rank versus others across all different dimensions of portfolio management? And so then they can iterate and optimize within their own style if they choose to work on their weaknesses. So you might have somebody who's great at cutting their losses, but is not so good at writing their winners. And so how do the other guys that are good at that do that? Or somebody that does great on generating IDEO alpha, but they lose too much on factors and they have too much volatility in their book and they wind up getting out of their winners too early because of that. Can you help them with portfolio construction and factor management to avoid that? So somebody who's over trading, how do you lower their trading costs? How much alpha do they have immediately after putting on trades. Maybe they could trade more patiently. So all these kind of things. And then there's a lot of horizontal learning, which is really important. So we have a lot of forums for that. We have a top PM gathering every year with top performers across strategies get together for a few days where we spend a lot of time together talking about best practices on things that are common across them. We'll have monthly PM meetings by strategies, what's working in equities, what's working in macro. People talk about their specialties and what's going on in the markets. There's a weekly PM call that's just PMs, no management, where they're talking about across strategies, again, across sectors. And you're just getting a lot of tidbits of information that you would never have as a siloed PM. We're doing a global PM get-together in New York where we have one day of content is things that are common across all PMs, where we have panels and things that are 
common processes. How do you build a team? How do you hire well? How do you grow your capital and expand? How do you utilize technology and data? And then you have another day that's strategy specific. The commodities guys, equity guys, macro guys, et cetera. So all those kind of things. And I think the horizontal stuff is just as valuable as the management development things because you just learn from practitioners. You get a lot of buy-in because somebody's talking about something that's working for them. It's very hard to sort of dismiss that. But you can really pick up a lot of things that otherwise you wouldn't have access to. As you roll it up, I'm curious how you go about the process of capital allocation across the strategies. We like to have a blend between top-down and bottom-up. I remember reading a long time ago how Home Depot got a lot more productivity out of their associates at the store, out of the clerks in the aisles, and how they were managed to really ramp earnings as they basically gave a lot more autonomy and decision-making ability to the guys in the stores. So they could figure out like how much of this product to order. They could make pricing adjustments on the fly because what might be selling in Omaha might not be selling in Nashville. And all of a sudden, their earnings went way up. And so I think you want to balance between guys who are in the line of fire, who are trading the book every day, having a lot of decision-making autonomy. But you also want top-down strategic ranges that you think make sense for the firm and for where the stage of development for that particular business is. So to put some numbers behind it, an individual PM might have a range. So we give them a vol allocation of 50, for example, but we could say you have room to go up or down 20% from that. In effect, you could go 40 to 60, depending on your assessment opportunity set at any given time. And so that's quite chunky. And if you have a number of people in a particular space all of a sudden go from 40 to 60, your allocation to that space just went up quite a lot. And so that's at the ground level, your day-to-day flows go to where the PMs feel that the opportunities are greatest at any given time. Then you have more discretionary changes where somebody raises their hand and says, I'm already at 120% of my allocation, but I really feel the opportunity set is outstanding and there's a special dislocation going on. And so I'd like some flex capital, even though it's going to be above what's in my business plan for this year. But I think I can go from this 50 to 75 for the next three months because we just had this major dislocation. I, my team did a good job of navigating it. And now we want to pick up all the pieces and the spreads are really wide and we want to have the extra capital to do that. And that could be in equities, that could be a macro, that could be anywhere. And then you have the top-down changes from the firm management investment committee level where we could say the prospects for this particular strategy look better. The firm is growing. We have access, additional capital we can deploy rather than deploy it exactly the same way we were deploying it before. We want to disproportionately add a little bit more here because the PMs are really doing well. There's a lot of opportunity. There might be less competition for some period, and you want to take advantage of that. So between those top-down and bottom-up pieces, you could be fairly dynamic. But what you don't want is uncontrolled changes. So we might take macro, for example, from 15% to 25% if we feel like the macro opportunity set just got a lot better, which we did the last couple of years. But we're not going to take it from 15 20% to 60% because you need the PMs to get used to running more capital. You need the depth of the teams to increase. There's always more challenges running more money. So you're always trying to find like that right balance of taking advantage of the opportunity but not 
getting so big that all of a sudden it swings the whole firm around before that business was ready for it. So at each of those levels, whether it's bottom up the PM, the opportunistic, the management looking at it, or the infrastructure required, when you see that pivot from 40% allocation to 60%, is there a bias in the firm that is momentum driven or mean reverting driven of what defines an opportunity set? It's usually a combination and it depends a bit on the strategy. So in strategies that are more RV oriented, so you could think about that as fixed income relative value, for example, or merger arbitrage, things that are very spread oriented. There's a cost of capital and there's a typical spread that you can earn if you're doing a good job in that strategy. And then once in a while, there's a dislocation, some deals blow up, some firm has a hard time, something surprising happened, there's a bunch of stopouts, and all of a sudden the spreads are much fatter. And so those are more on a mean reversion basis where those guys will pick up their hands and go, this is the time we need to step up. And the trick is you want to hopefully have navigated the drawdown period well enough to where you have the ammunition to step up. Because it's always easy to say, yeah, of course we should step up. Most of the time things come back. But if you don't have the room there and they don't come back for a while and they get worse, now you have a giant hole in the fund. You have to navigate the balance of those risks. But if the teams have done a reasonable job and that business is doing fine overall, then you definitely want to play offense when you're in a position to do so and capture that. Other strategies that are, I would say, a little bit more momentum-y, like the growthy sectors in equity investing or directional macro trading, those tend to be a little bit more momentum-y where a good environment feeds a good environment for periods of time. And usually people will want more capital as they're making money in, in those areas. As you look at the overall portfolio, let's just focus this on equity long short, the notion of volatility scaling, as it relates to both what you're doing and then, of course, the other types of capital, the vast amounts of capital in some of your peers, how do you think about navigating not just your own portfolio, but the broader equity market environment that your PMs are participating in? Yeah, so you always think about the positioning and the crowdiness in different areas. In general, the best environment is when there's a lot of generalist participation in a strategy and there's a lot of money coming into a strategy. Because then your specialist participants, whether they're trading bonds, currencies, commodities, equities, like they should be able to do a better job of forecasting where the capital is going to go. On the other side, the worst environment is when there is no generalist capital and money's flowing out of the strategy, and the specialists in the strategy are all underwater. And so in that environment, you're trading against other specialists, and nobody has much risk tolerance, and so you have this cascading drawdown type of periods. So you want to know which type of period you're in and adjust the capital allocation accordingly. And again, you're never going from all in or all out. But you're certainly changing it relatively aggressively, depending on that period. Your risk in a particular sub-strategy could be up or down 50% very easily if you're in a good period versus poor period. So how we guide PMs when we have meetings and talk about kind of what's working in the market and what the environment is for a strategy, how much room you're willing to give things, how much positioning becomes a factor and how much you're 
looking to ride new winners is very dependent on which of those environments you're in. How do you think about that? PMs leaving the firm? We basically guide people, number one, to be very thoughtful on the hiring. The more thoughtful and the more work you put into the hiring process, the better your odds are that you won't have to deal with making a change, or at least not quickly. And we see this all the time. The biggest gating factor to someone's success growing from a first-time PM to an experienced PM or a small PM to a large PM is their ability to build a team, to manage a team. And so defining that to start, like, what are the people you're looking for? What does your ideal number two look like? What does your ideal partner in your portfolio look like? What coverage model do you want? And what are the people look like that are covering those spaces? What's their experience level? And what are your expectations from them? And you want to really figure out how to avoid the expectation mismatches and just doing things that are unrealistic. So we see a lot of times you'll have a younger PM and by definition, they'll then wind up almost always hiring really young analysts. And the expectation is this person's going to come in and help me make a lot of money. It's just not realistic. At the stage of development that they're in, they're going to take a couple of years just to figure out how to be additive. So if you want somebody to come in and help you make money and you're a first-time PM, you better find a partner on your portfolio. It could be a 50-50 partner, they could be a 60-40 partner, they could be a 70-30 partner, but somebody who's really going to be a partner or a strong number two for you, where they're going to be sufficiently attracted enough to the growth prospects of that to where you're going to be able to get an experienced you know, person. So it's those expectations, avoiding those mismatches, I feel is really, really important. And also how much effort you're putting into the process. Maybe the first person you interview is going to be great, but usually... It might take 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 interviews of looking at lots of people, being very clear on what your criteria is. And through the process, you're also defining in your own mind what you like, what you don't like, what's the ideal background for you, and defining that better. And then taking the time with that person, like have them do case studies, have them do some sort of part-time analysis for you, talk to them for a bit on lots of potential ideas and compare them to other people and really make a thoughtful decision. Interview them on Saturday, see if they show up for a couple hours. Just make sure they're really bought in and it's a really good fit. It lessens all those problems. Now, having said all that, you're still going to have to make changes and we'll do everything possible to help them over that period of time to get going. But it's important to have enough time because you could have somebody with a great track record that starts when their particular strategy is really out of favor. And the best person to strategy, you could have had the best directional macro guy five, six, seven years ago when there was zero volatility and rates were at zero. They're just not going to do that well. And then you let them all go. And then, you know, the year after that, the rates start going and they all make a fortune. So you have to sort of distinguish between giving somebody enough time on an absolute basis, but also what's the opportunity set in that strategy. So if the opportunity set in the strategy has been great and they're not doing well and you've given them a good amount of time, we tend to make a change. If the opportunity set in the strategy has also been really tough, but they're really doing a good job building their team, constantly iterating their process, getting feedback, coming up with innovative ways of improving, and just working their butts off, we'll tend to give them more time. And hopefully there'll be a change in the environment for that strategy. For an analyst with a PM, if you don't think it's working, you give them clear feedback on why it's not working and what they need to do to change. Or maybe they're great and it's just not fit style-wise. And in those cases, we'll try to find them a fit with another team. 
But generally, we want people focused on their top performers and how to scale them as opposed to constantly trying to fix the underperformer. At some point, it's just better to make a change. We tend to do a lot of work figuring out ahead of time, how committed are we to this strategy? A lot of times we'll get a call in this team, this PM that kind of picks their head up. They previously haven't wanted to engage, but whatever, there's some issue at the firm and now they want to look around. And they're like, I talked to a competitor of yours last week and I got a term sheet three days later. I'm like, well, that's not going to happen here. <laughs> <laughs> so you should just take that if that's what you want. You want to be aggressive and move quickly, but if you're going to take three days to hire somebody, they'll probably take three days to fire somebody. So we want to invest the time up front to figure out, is it a good fit? Are we really bought into the team and the strategy? Inevitably, they're going to have a hard time at some point. And you want people that have actually taken the time to understand what the heck they're doing and to have some conviction in the team. So when they are having a hard time, you could go back to your notes and say like, oh, we all spent a lot of time with these guys. We thought they were great six months ago. They're probably still great. They're having a hard time for some reason. Let's see if we can figure out why. And then in things like macro, it's a little bit more discretionary. So like Steve Goldberg, head of our uh, macro business trades. So him and the macro management team work with the PMs on some of the trades. And occasionally they'll do trades that are split three or four different ways. And they'll all trade it independently and compare their views. And we found that's very creative on the macro side because there's less line items to trade and it's more helpful to compare and customize structurings. Whereas a lot of the value in the positions, a lot of times is how you structure them and the optionality you're able to build in. And whereas in equities, there's thousands of line items and there isn't really much structuring. And so that's much easier done quantitatively. When you add all this up, I'm really curious, what does your dashboard look like? I look at the main bets that we have. I look at equities markets overall and the larger macro uh, markets. And then I look at all the PM, P&Ls. So you have every team as a P&L, and then you roll it up by sub-strategies. Keep an eye on what's working and what's not working, where you might be able to take more risk, less risk. How do you think about leverage at the firm level? We run to a vol profile like the rest of the PMs, so we run the firm the same way. We've averaged about a 4 to 4.5% vol as a fund for the last, I'd say, probably five years. It's been pretty consistent. Now that we've gotten more diversified and built out more large strategies that are uncorrelated. What does that vol translate into of, say, leverage and equities? Equities, it tends to average around 4 pretty typical. It changes, obviously, depending on the vol environment that you're in. That tends to be an average. I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about the multi-strategy, multi-PM business as it relates to markets and competition. And there's always this concern that there's a lot of leverage in the equity markets in these strategies, and they all have variations of a theme of similar trading strategies. How do you think about the potential for some systemic risk or contagion effect across these different strategies and firms? I don't think it's unique to this space. I think for some reason it gets singled out to this space, but much larger risk in dollars is the more long bias strategies that are common across other areas. So if you look at last year and you think about the meltdown in growth investing and whether that was your mutual funds, your ETFs, your long bias tech funds, they were all pretty correlated and the dollars of those dwarf the dollars when you're thinking about a market neutral equity stock picker market. 
I think it happens across every strategy. It's just one of the things you have to deal with. I think the way you can help mitigate it is through diversification. So the more diversification you have as a firm with good risk controls and good PMs, not just diversification because you know you hired the first available guy and you threw him in there and you said you're diversified, but you've really taken a long time to build really solid businesses across different strategies, sectors, geographies, trading styles, and your capital is diverse across those, it certainly helps. It doesn't get rid of it. So if your larger competitor down the street decides to close up shop in a disorderly way tomorrow, is that going to have a ramification across all these firms? Absolutely. But on the other side of that, if you can navigate it, you obviously have phenomenal opportunities because you have more alpha and less people to pick up that alpha and you have big dislocations. So you have to manage through those periods. So one of the things I take pride in is in 2020, we had a period in the first quarter trading around the COVID mess where we did a good job trading around it in equities. We had really good information flow across our teams between the healthcare teams and others and then across the macro universe. But then there were other strategies, various relative value macro strategies, merger arbitrage strategies, all the RV type stuff that wasn't directly related to it where the spreads really blew out. And we could have done a better job of seeing that early. We didn't. And I think most people didn't see that connection quickly. But even at the depths of third week in March, like we were positive on the month with a lot of convexity in the portfolio, even though those strategies were down a lot. And firms that didn't have that diversification or didn't do a good job of seeing it in other places, they had massive drawdowns intramonth. And so we never want to be in a position of relying on a government intervention to save us. You want to build a diversified and durable enough business across all these things that you always have some areas that are hopefully doing well when others aren't. If there's a crowding, unwind in a particular space, you'll probably get hurt there. But hopefully you'll have other strategies that are doing well enough that you can sustain and trade around it and maintain a decent enough level of exposure to where when it snaps back, you're there. And that's one of the benefits of running a diverse business. What's happened with the other side of the balance sheet and the types of investors and how you've gotten the capital that you've needed to grow in the ways you want to over time? Yeah, this is something I wish we would have done a better job of early on. Unfortunately, when we started off, we were coming from a prop background. Thankfully, there was enough interest and we got initial capital, but it wound up being very volatile capital because we didn't really have an institutional approach and institutional investors. And so it wound up with too much momentum. And sometimes the momentum was based on us, where I remember first we, we went from 300 to 600, and then we had a drawdown and we went back to 300. In the meantime, I'd hired a lot of people and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, how are we going to deal with this? We made the money back and it was fine. But it happened again in 08 where it didn't have anything to do with us, but we went from two and a half billion to one and a quarter billion and we made money in 08. People needed their capital and we decided not to gate them and we were liquid. And so people took their capital. So post that, and particularly the last five years, we really emphasized a more institutional approach, both first in the types of investors and then in the terms. I mean, I think you need both. And now our success and consistency over time, we've had, knock on wood, 20 out of 21 positive years and very consistent volatility and drawdown management and zero correlation over that time. It's enabled us to attract 
and grow really top tier investor relationships. So the investors we have today, a lot of them are like the who's who. If you took a, just a blank sheet of paper approach and you said you were starting the best fund in the world, who would you want invested? Like a lot of our investors would be on that list. But that's taken a long time to develop those relationships, both from getting to know each other and working together through the ups and downs that you inevitably go through, as well as the transparency that we try to provide them and the value add that we try to give them beyond our returns. We always try to help them with market color or any strategies that they're considering internally. So that was first, building out a institutional marketing team, a client relationship team, which again has taken decade to do successfully. It's a big part of that. And then the second part is the term. So as the strategy has been successful and we've delivered, we've been able to get longer duration commitments. And that's really helpful. And I wish we would have had that 10 years ago because every time your capital goes up and down a lot, it just stifles your business development. Sometimes even your retention, like although we did a pretty good job with that, but your ability to expand and take advantage of those dislocations. If your capital is shrinking at that time, like you just can't do it. I think it's very tied to the success in building out additional strategies. And you could kind of see a chart of our duration of our capital expanding to where today it's all two and three year capital up from, you know, monthly and quarterly capital five years ago. Our success in building out things like macro and commodities and other strategies I think is directly tied to that because you can consistently invest and you could show potential incoming PMs. If you hire a quant PM today, a lot of them have two-year sit-outs and then they take another year to build. So they have to believe that they're joining a place that's going to have plenty of capital and resources for them to deploy three years from now. So if your capital duration is three months, you could talk all day about how great you are and how great your investors are. They're just not going to buy that. So it's a real impediment in hiring. And then also in investing for the infrastructure that you need for these areas, a lot of the technology investments that we're making to improve the trading infrastructure, for example, where we think we can lower our slippage significantly, multiplied by the billions and billions of dollars we trade every day. It's going to have a huge impact for our investors, but we can't make those investments that are multi-year investments where you have to fund large teams to develop these things if you don't have the visibility on your capital. So as we've been able to push that out, I think it really improves our ability to make those investments both in people and systems to then drive the better returns. And I think you've seen that consistently across some of the larger peers. It's had a lot of growth in your fund and other peers over the last couple of years. How do you think about where this can go over the next five or 10 years in terms of the capital that can be deployed in these strategies? Well, I think it's a function of how much capital is going to be in the markets, which is a function of what happens to the world. If the world continues to grow and the world is flourishing and GDP is growing and economies are expanding and money is going to come into the markets, then I think you can continue to grow. That ebbs and flows. But history, I think, has shown us that over time it tends to grow. Then you have the types of firms question. So last year, the multi-strap, multi-PM space hugely outperformed the single manager space. This year, I think you've seen a little bit of a flip. And part of that is the beta inherent in a lot of single manager strategies, where if markets are up this year. If you're running a 50% beta or you're long growth and short value type stuff, like you're going to do well. So there's certainly periods where I think those strategies will outperform. And that's usually exacerbated when there's a lot of money that 
comes into the multi-strat and a lot of money gets out of the single manager. And then of course it flips around. But if you look at it over 5, 10, 15, 20 year periods, I think the secular trend is going to be sustained. So if you look at the market share in terms of investor dollars or the market share even more so in terms of the alpha pie in the markets or the talent in the markets and how much of that was owned by the leading diversified multi-strat firms 20 years ago, 10 years ago today, that chart is up and to the right. And I think that's going to continue in that same direction, similar to what you've seen in other areas, whether you're looking at banking and what's the market share of the top five banks, or you look at private equity, what's the market share of the top five private equity firms. Once you build a durable franchise with a, a particular culture, a particular way of doing things that people are attracted to, that stood the test of time, you can bolt on different pieces. You have the ability and resources to innovate, the ability to build new businesses, new strategies, the ability to try things and adapt. And that allows you to grow over time. How do you think about the war for talent? Maybe the right way to think about it is in kind of supply and demand. Are there a limited number of PMs that can succeed in that model? And if so, and the capital keeps coming in, what happens to that competition for that scarce resource? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a limited number of good PMs in general. So I don't think it's limited to this particular model. I think any type of high alpha content model where you really need to have a lot of skill. Like by definition, there's few people that are going to have a lot of skill. How do you compete for that? It's a self-correcting mechanism to some extent. Like any market, at periods it's going to become overheated and at periods it's going to become depressed. So if you have a strategy that's done well and everybody's making money in that strategy, the talent in that strategy tends to get bit up. Then more people build teams in that area, more people overpay for the cost of building those teams, more capital gets deployed there, the returns come down, and the management of these firms got to be successful for a reason. We don't tend to keep doing the same dumb thing over and over again. So if you start losing money on something, you'll pretty quickly adjust. And so then the cycle repeats and rinses the other way. And all of a sudden, talent in an area goes from overbid to no bid very quickly. And so you try to be a little bit contrarian. It's hard to be completely contrarian. Just like in the markets, I think there's a balance. I don't think you want to sit with your value stock for 10 years for the one year that it's going to bounce. So we're always bid for the top talent in a particular area, but we always want to make sure we're getting a good return on that investment. I'm curious if you look at the levers of success and you're comparing your firm, you maybe have, I don't know, two or three competitors, let's say in that 15 to 20, $25 billion range, you've got two that are significantly bigger, and then maybe you have a bunch that are trying to grow, but are significantly smaller. What do you see as the strengths and weaknesses comparatively where you sit today to, you know, on one end, Citadel Millennium, and the other end, someone who hasn't gotten the critical mass that you have? I think the biggest firms have the advantage of being the biggest firms, and they have the disadvantage of being the biggest firms. The advantages are they have more really developed strategies than others. The quant businesses there, for example, are very developed, whereas we're in the process of building out a quant business. So they have the advantage of having that P&L stream where we don't yet. And they have the infrastructure for it where we're building. On the other hand, when you're recruiting, you have the advantage of being a smaller firm. So some people are attracted to going to a place where everything is built out and plugging in and being a cog in the successful machine. 
and that's fine. Other folks want to be part of the build. It's a way to attract people who are very entrepreneurial and who are real business builders, whereas 20 years ago, they probably would have just started their own fund. But now the industry has evolved to where there's so many impediments to doing that and so many resources you need. It just doesn't really make sense 99% of the time. So they're attracted to the offering where they could be part of architecting how a strategy is developed and built. Part of having a seat at that table as a senior PM and helping to build that. And then having the opportunity that comes in the back of that, if they're successful with it, they could build a larger franchise where one might already exist at a place that has this built out. They can move into management over time. They can become a partner over time. So it's different trade-offs. I think you have to be big enough to where you can have the resources in terms of how much capital you're willing to allocate, how much risk you're willing to give out. Years ago, we were uh, always hoping that we would have more than one or two people that would come to our top PM event at every year end that were up over 100 for the year. Now everyone that comes there is up over 100, and we have some sub-PMs that are up over 100. You have to have enough capital to kind of make those bets to do that, but also enough opportunity that attracts those people, that sweet spot. So when you go too much lower, it's very difficult to have both sides of that equation because you have the opportunity side of the equation, but do you have the resource side of it? Are you willing to take enough risk? Are you willing to put enough capital behind somebody, not just on day one, but as they grow, if they have some success and now they're outperforming everybody else, how do you navigate that? Do you have the resources, all the technology and data and everything else to put behind somebody, the analyst development, all these different things? So the smaller you get, the harder all those things are to offer. And then for larger firms, they have the opposite challenge, right? Like you have all the resources, but how do you offer somebody the growth opportunities? And so we started a second equities business, for example. Some of our competitors have multiple equity businesses. So you have to come up with different structures to enable people to be entrepreneurial and to build businesses and have that runway to compete with the smaller firms for those type of folks. So it kind of goes both ways. What are the differentiations on the non-investing side, say all of the operational infrastructure, the costs of trading, all of the things that go from the stock decision or the bond decision, the currency decision, commodity decision to the return? We have large technology teams, large data teams, large legal teams, and they work across strategies with specialists for all these different areas. And so when there's an opportunity that might be fleeting that takes a lot of analysis to figure out across the firm. We have the ability to get with the collaborative culture of the firm, the risk guys, the legal guys, the portfolio construction guys, the heads of different strategies. We can all jump on the phone together and really figure something out, whether it's bringing on a new team that might have a new strategy, whether it might be a particular trade that's off the run that somebody wants to do. More and more, I think that's going to be a differentiator in return because the commoditized stuff that's fairly easy to do, by definition, more and more people are going to do that. So commodities, like why are there so few places that have built out good commodity businesses? Because it's freaking hard. So we kind of like those areas where you can export some of your capabilities, but that are difficult and painful to build because it keeps competition out. It might take you a number of years, but if you can do it, you got a moat around the business. In addition to the liquid markets, broadly defined, which canvas a lot of what you do, you mentioned this growth venture capital area. I'd love to hear 
why you got into the growth area. I think it's an extension of equities investing. So as you build these businesses, every year you kind of sit back and you ask, like, how do we grow this general franchise? What are the other areas that you can expand into that piggyback on your capabilities? So, you know, in equities, how do you do that? Well, when we started, we started with short-term trading, then we got to longer-term fundamental trading, right? So you expand by time frame. Then you can expand by geography. So we have a lot of people in Europe. We have a lot of people in Asia. Those are continuing to grow. We're opening up Dubai. Like You're going to get more global coverage, assuming these regions of the world continue to grow. So then you go, okay, well, what other artificial divisions are there? Well, there's the private-public division. So if you're looking at a private company that's a growth company raising a Series D round, is that dissimilar from a publicly traded company with a couple billion dollar market cap that your public PMs are investing in? Most of the time, it's not that different. And so you can use some of your skill sets from looking at the valuations and prospects in the public space and apply them to the private space. But there's also a lot of particulars in the private space. So you have to build that capability separately. You can't just have public guys do it. You can leverage off of their skills and team with them. But it's different because, first of all, you have to have dedicated time. So if it's an earnings period, how much time is your public PM going to spend analyzing this private investment that's going to take a ton of time to go meet with the management, call the customers, run the model? Like they're going to take zero time because they've got enough volatility in their public portfolio. So you need private people with that expertise. You need the sourcing capability. You have to be invited into the best deals. So you need to build your brand. You need to build your value add to the companies. What are you going to do for them? Can you help them with your data expertise, which is one of our differentiators? Can you help them with your equity capital markets expertise and how to navigate the private to public transition as the public windows open up? So we do teach-ins between the private PMs, the public PMs, your equity capital markets desk and a venture capital fund that'll bring a bunch of founders who are looking to go public in the next few years and we'll do a teaching for them. And so you build your brand and you have a line and a relationship with the founders. A lot of the skill sets are very complementary. And then even when you don't invest, you usually learn a lot about the company. So eventually if they come public, you'll know more about them than others. And if they don't come public, but you still learn something about that business that you could apply to trading a competitor or whether or investing in another private company, it's a very accretive strategy longer term. Now, like anything, it takes a long time to build. If you're going to do it in a quality way, you can just open up and spray money. But if you're going to really try to build a team, build a process, build a brand, build your expertise, it's a multi-year strategic undertaking. And we started with a small amount of capital. And as you build it out and you have success, you raise dedicated capital. And I think if you look at firms like D. Shaw that have done a good job at this across different strategies, they've taken the quant expertise and the business building expertise and leveraged it successfully. Now in private credit and private equity, solar investing, a lot of different tangential strategies, which have added a lot of value to their investors, and we'd like to do the same over time. How have you thought about that other divide between, say, equity and lower in the capital structure? So we have a credit investing business, also relatively new, that we started in the last couple of years. We started with a couple of credit portfolios. We're looking to build out more, but we trade converts, we trade high yield, we trade investment grade, we trade in the US, we trade in Europe, but it's still relatively small. It's just a couple percent of our AUM. 
whenever we start new businesses, we start them small. We figure we're going to be the worst at them when we start. And as we build the expertise and the teams and the infrastructure and they're generating P&L, then we look to grow them. So now we're in the process of scaling those teams, plus we're adding a few more teams with different geographic expertise, different types of trading style. And if we're successful with that, then you can look and go and say, okay, we have success at public credit. Should we look at private credit? You want to have success at each piece before you sort of go to the next piece. Same thing in commodities. If you had success in financial commodities, then you can look at physical and how do you leg into physical? So we're starting to work on that. So it's one step at a time. As you look out over the next, whatever it is, five years, 10 years gets a little bit long. What are you hoping to accomplish? We want to have world-class businesses in all the strategies that we're engaged in. So if somebody says, who's the best in equities? We want them to say, bam. Who's the best in macro? We want them to say, bam. We want to get there. I think we're in the conversation on those first couple. We're earlier on in some of the other businesses, but we have good plans for getting there. Businesses that you're just starting off, you want to get them from startup to they're a solid business. Maybe you're not going to be the best in quantum five years. Can you be in the conversation as like a well-known, reputable, solidly P&L generating quant business? That'll be great for the next five years. Then the following five years are like, okay, well now we are, how do we get to the top three? And so you sort of want to do that across every business. And I think the same applies in infrastructure. We want to, people to think about like, where is the best technology on the hedge fund side? We want to be in that conversation. So you want to be the best in all the areas that you're really involved in where you've had time to get to that. And you want to maintain your culture and your spirit of the firm and the partnership ethos of the firm and expand that really as you're continuing to grow. I think that's really important for us. Dimitri, before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of fun closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Summertime, I like to mountain bike. Wintertime, I like to ski. I like to play basketball, work out. Just try to do something physical that takes your mind out of the markets. If your mind drifts, you're going to wipe out. So it really forces you to focus on something else and clears your mind. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think sort of analysis paralysis. I think it applies on the business side as well. There's a healthy amount of analysis you need to do to gain enough conviction, establish a risk reward, and just get going. You could do analysis forever. And if by the time it becomes obvious, usually the opportunity is gone. And so a lot of times you're not really going to learn everything until you're involved. You just got to figure out how to get involved in a risk responsible way that you can then scale up or down depending on what you learn. What investment mistake have you made that you'd never make again? Probably related to the overconfirmation point. Like in 2008, we spent a lot of time trying to get comfortable with the subprime short. We had an early look at it. And I was very attracted to it because of the payoffs that you had at the time on it. And we spent a lot of time trying to get different parts of the firm comfortable so somebody would put it on. But we didn't really have any mortgage traders. We didn't have credit traders. We barely had fixed income traders at the time. So we had some macro and equity. And so we had the equity guys chatting with people on the trade, the macro guys chatting, but it wasn't in anyone's bailiwick. And we were... Uh, overly focused on what the investor reaction to it would be if it didn't work. The question would be like, well, what are you doing trading mortgages, right? You're like equity guys. We wound up not putting it on, even though we personally had money in the Paulson Mortgage Short Fund. We made some money personally on that. 
and with employees, but we never uh, made a big dent in the fund, which was huge miss. So we wound up making a little bit of money in 08 instead of making a lot of money because we're overly focused on that sort of investor risk mitigation, as opposed to just saying we've modeled it out to where if it didn't work, we were going to lose one or 2% on the fund level. And we're willing to risk that. And if it worked, we would have made a lot, just being comfortable with that assessment. So that's something we learned from that. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I'd say philosophically, I became a big fan of Ayn Rand in college. I read At the Shrug, became my favorite book. I'd say it had a big influence because a lot of this game is really mental. And so you have to have your philosophy aligned with what you do for a living. If it's not, it's very hard to have sustainable success. So if you have a lot of conflict and guilt around being successful, you wind up self-sabotaging yourself. And I've seen this a lot over time. And so she was very good at articulating a very cohesive, positive philosophy for being a successful, productive individual and for capitalism in general not just as a positive economically, but as a moral positive, which really helped not ever having those type of conflicts where you could basically be a positive influence on a larger level, on a society level, company level, et cetera, while being very individually successful, that it's not a trade-off between the two. So that was very impactful to me. And I've gone back and, and read it a number of times over the years and have gotten involved with the Iran Institute on the back of that. We actually started a uh, scholarship program last couple of years called Atlas Fellows based on uh, the title from that. And their funds are called Atlas Funds. We uh, find really qualified, top-tier, driven, but under-resourced high school kids and help them with college scholarships combined with financial industry internships. And that's on the reading list. Professionally at work, I would say definitely uh, Stephen Schoenfeld, who was the owner of Schoenfeld Securities. Now it's morphed into a hedge fund over time. But when I was there, it was a proprietary firm. Uh, and so Stephen gave me a really good opportunity to build kind of my own division and the runway to do that. And secondly, the opportunity to co-invest with him in hedge funds when I was very young and just starting to make money, I had the opportunity not just to invest, but also basically be the fund-to-fund uh, -fund analyst. So I would trade all day and then call Renaissance and try to get capacity after the markets closed. And so that was great learning because I really learned early on how to differentiate different firms and why some were successful and, and have those conversations with my own money kind of backing it. And so that was very foundational as we thought about how to build our business. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Work ethic and integrity. We had the classic immigrant experience. So my uh, dad was a college professor in Kiev. My mom was an engineer. They came here, they were cleaning motel rooms for $3 an hour. So just the work ethic, seeing them go through that and get back to uh, their normal professions over time and the perseverance to do that and always having the integrity to do it the right way. What's the best advice you've ever received? We had an early investor, Tom Lee, who ran a, a successful private equity firm. And I think we had $300 million under management or something when he invested with us. And he had a big family office. That was a prominent hedge fund investor. And we met with him. I asked him, we're just starting out. What's good advice? And 
And he said something that always stuck with me, which is this business is a pain in the ass. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it big. <laughs> he's like, it's a pain either way. You're always dealing with lots of different constituencies and lots of different people, plus the markets. So if you're going to bother, might as well do it big. All right, Dimitri, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I'd say probably hiring uh, really experienced people as opposed to trying to figure everything out yourself. This becomes easier, obviously, as you grow. But I think we were always very do-it-yourself and maybe a little bit too adverse to just paying up and getting somebody who really has already done it. And it's not just money, it's also delegating authority and figuring out the right balance of partnering with somebody to build particular areas. But once we got comfortable and we're always iterating and trying to get better at that, but I'd say that took the firm to a new level. And I think now we have the opportunity to do that again as we're looking to build different businesses and departments. Dimitri, thanks so much for the time and this great look inside what you've done over a couple of decades. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time.